Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about my life in the church, how I loved it, and in the end, how I left it. I wrote the memoir to find out why. In this episode, I've finally been ordained as both deacon and priest and I begin my ministry in the little town of Cookstown, where I'd been serving as both student and deacon in charge. As a priest, while some would describe me as having been ontologically changed, my frail humanity was never in question. It even flowered in the hours immediately following the ceremony itself, where my heavenly love was being undermined by my earthly attachments. I'm reading from chapter seven, Part two. And together we will flow as we sail into the mistake. Come on, come on. Following my ordination service, we all returned to the rectory in Cookstown. It was a beautiful sunny day. My friends and family mingled easily in the house and out on the porch. My two young nieces, the daughters of my brother and of my sister, twirled together on the lawn with flowers braided in their hair, like a belated May Day celebration. My mother worked away in the kitchen behind the scenes to supply everyone with food and drink. May I just say here, before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, and before you think it yourself, that I'm an idiot, especially when it comes to relationships. It's a character flaw. Like my father before me, I live my life so vividly in light of the possible that I rarely heed what breeds in the shadows of the actual. With such idealism, things can go awry, and they usually do. Unchecked hope can suddenly turn into unintended hurt. So, this is what happened. I hadn't dated Marion for more than a year. Instead, we'd become just friends, in the way of tortured couples where one wants more, the other less, but for the sake of the friendship, both resign themselves to an uneasy tension where it's not enough for one, but too much for the other. That's why some people, wiser than I, when they break up with someone, simply close the door and move on. But no, I invited Marion to share in this event. She was my friend. She'd been part of my formation as a minister-to-be. In my mind, she was part of my one big happy family. Even as a new relationship, then in the days of its earliest budding, would be on display for all to see. I had met Sandy a few weeks before my priesting. As with Marion, it began as a professional consultation. 
I had written a pamphlet on youth ministry, and I wanted the Anglican Church of Canada to publish it. Sandy was the National Youth Ministry Coordinator. I set up a meeting and took the pamphlet to her office in downtown Toronto. She gave it a glance, but was vague about the publishing possibilities. I felt there might be other possibilities, though. Sandy was like no woman I'd ever met. There was a dreamy, distracted quality to her, as if she was thinking about something else. She gave the impression of floating through life, which made her seem both vulnerable in need of protection and also ethereal, in touch with some other realm. She represented the kind of emotional independence or detachment I might have wished for myself. She was certainly and unapologetically herself. I was intrigued. Impulsively, I invited her to attend my upcoming ordination, which would take place in a few short weeks. It was in Barrie, an hour from the city, which would require a bit of a drive for her in the middle of an already hectic cross-country travel schedule, but she was willing to move her schedule around. I took this as a good sign. Marion and Sandy met in the kitchen. In the spirit of familial support, like a sister might do, or perhaps a hopeful ex-girlfriend, Marion had brought a broccoli salad to contribute to the feast. She presented it to my mother and was likely feeling pleased to be able to participate in this way. But there was someone else in the kitchen. Sandy was meeting my family and friends, all of them together, for the first time. I can only imagine it was overwhelming for her. So she had found a safe place to linger, in the kitchen, with my mom. I breezed through getting a drink for someone at the precise moment Marion and Sandy set eyes on one another. Startled by the sudden awkwardness of the situation, I did what any gracious host would do. I introduced them. To Sandy, Marion was just another stranger without a meaningful connection to anyone else. But Marion saw the connection right away. It took her about three seconds to turn on her heels and walk out the door. I followed behind her, but there was no stopping that train. It had worked up ahead of steam and was bound for home. Marion told me some years later that as she drove back down Highway 400 that day toward Toronto, she was so blinded by her hurt and her rage that she almost drove into the concrete abutment of an overpass. Marion and I remained civil in the months that followed, but I knew I had hurt her all over again. As my deaconing had been marked by hurting someone I cared about, so had my priesting, and it was the same person. How could this have happened? Why did my advancement in the church require someone else to suffer for it? But I wasn't asking those sorts of questions, and soon I'd be bringing someone new to that same altar, Sandy. I wish that whatever knowledge or wisdom I've gained in the intervening years had been available to guide that new young priest so eager to become a guide to others. I would grow into that priestly caller, but it would take some time. Others would get hurt along the way, myself included, until I learned that the gospel was not entirely about light, which sometimes serves only to show us those things we want to see and to blind us to those we don't. But none of this occurred to me at the time. I was going to change the world by the radiant light of the gospel, and no less 
by my own radiant light, my sunny disposition, my winning optimism. So, casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light, I couldn't wait to get on with the job. After I was priested, I was appointed by the bishop as the incumbent of the parish of Cookstown. There was so much I wanted to share with my people. This included all the liturgical advancements of the Anglican Church of Canada over the past decade, a new prayer book, the inclusion of baptized children at communion, a liberal theology, a progressive social agenda, and especially the idea of a freestanding altar. God should be represented as if in the midst of the people, not up against a far wall where the priest has to preside with his or her back to the people like the conductor of a trolley car, the times they were a-changin'. The altar at St. John's had already been pulled out from the wall during Dave Ward's time, so they already worshipped among the moderns. But at Little St. Luke's, the altar stood its ground beneath the east window, firmly affixed to the wall. Not immutably, though, as it turned out. Alf Sperry and I went over with a toolbox one afternoon in the days following my ordination. My first Eucharist as a priest was to take place the following Sunday at St. Luke's, and I wanted to start things off right. We removed strips of molding and the hefty wood screws that attached the altar to the wall, and then a few braces that held it in place on the floor. Suddenly, there was nothing holding us back. We lifted the altar, and out it came. A small step for a man, a giant leap for St. Luke's. The space was tight between the wall and the altar rail, where people knelt to receive their communion. I had to fit into both spaces, fore and aft, behind the altar to stand facing the people as I blessed the bread and wine, and then in front to distribute communion at the rail. We managed to find a midway position for the altar that permitted both, but just. I then set about familiarizing myself with the Missal, the large print version of the prayer book from which the priest reads at the altar. The thick pages were shiny with use at the corners, where several generations of priests before me had taken the page between their thumb and forefinger to turn it. I would be continuing that pattern, and I wanted to get it right. The words were all familiar to me, the same words I heard Father Howarth intone at St. Martin's so many years ago. There were newer words, of course. In time, I would try to introduce them into the liturgy, but for now, I felt I was taking my place among the priests of old, honoring them, and summoning their assistance as I now spoke the sacred words myself for the first time. When the day came, triumphantly, I stood behind the altar, facing the people. But the hand and arm gestures I had been taught by Dean Buckner in our priestcraft classes were intended for spaces larger than this. The grand sweep of the arms that provide the visual effect for the Lord be with you in this space suddenly became the wave of two flippers at the end of my frozen arms. There was no room for them to sweep anywhere. In the old days, when a priest presided with his back to the people, it not only represented the piety of the day, it also covered a multitude of sins. 
When he accidentally dropped the host into the chalice of wine and had to fish it out, no one could see what he was doing. They assumed that whatever it was, it had some deep religious significance. On this day, when a bee, attracted through the open windows by the sweet smell of the wine, began buzzing around the chalice, landing on the rim, there was no dignified way to flick it off, not with everyone watching, nor when it slipped into the chalice and began treading wine could I remove it tactfully. In went my finger for all to see, with a linen purificator that had just been bleached and ironed specially for the occasion, and out came the bee. Then, as I concluded the solemn prayer of consecration and lifted the chalice and paten in a gesture of invitation to the people, a bird, perhaps in pursuit of the bee, suddenly flew the length of the church and back. People had to duck their heads until it found a roost for itself in the rafters. But nothing could ruin the day. If all of nature wanted to become part of my first Eucharist, in witness to the full inclusiveness of the extravagant grace of God, let it be. If all our grand plans and intentions served only to point to our creaturely fallibility, God's grace would prove greater. Let it be. I remember that day, after all these years, with a smile on my lips and a fullness in my heart. I'm sure the people who were there do as well. Six months later, I accepted the appointment as priest and incumbent of a burgeoning suburban congregation in Unionville, northeast of Toronto. My Cookstown congregations gathered on my last Sunday to give me a send-off. They presented me with gifts, and we exchanged kind words with one another over lunch in the parish hall beneath St. John's. We acknowledged that we had been a good match, and that we had been changed by one another— perhaps not ontologically, but nevertheless in good ways. Then, as I returned to the rectory to begin packing my bags, some of them drove over to Little St. Luke's and put the altar back where it belonged, against the wall. I've been reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. When I reach the end, the format of this podcast will change. The topic will remain the same, an exploration of what we might call a post-Christian spirituality. But having done all the talking, I'll be relieved to turn things over to others, to guests I'll be interviewing, to let them do all the talking. In the meantime, I'd like to do some listening now to you. If anything you've heard has awakened memories or thoughts or questions from your own life, I'd love to hear about those. You can join the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, and leave a post there. Or you can write me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Next time, I get my first real glimpse of power politics in the church. Who knew? I hope you'll stay with me. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too